Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. It's a culture. Uh, people grow up by and large and they accept the values of their culture as being good if not the best and so people who grow up with guns uh, believe that guns are part of life and part of uh, uh, what makes life worth living so Hello, I'm Danielle Smith, President of Alberta Enterprise Group. Welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. Hang on, I just need to interview you or introduce you so that people know a little bit of our history together. Gary Mauser is the Emeritus Professor at the Beatles School of Business at Simon Fraser University, Canada's really foremost gun control scholar, as well as a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. And Professor, I I first became aware of your work all the way back in the 1990s when I was doing uh, property rights advocacy. And I was so interested to see that you and I have a similar history, that we we didn't come to the issue of gun control and firearms rights because we grew up in families that were firearms owners and hunters. And it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I, I, I never owned a gun uh, when I became aware of some of these issues. And I'm kind of interested in knowing how you came to the issue. And then we can talk about uh, some of the problems that we've seen in how governments want to regulate around this area. But first, tell us why, having having not been a gun enthusiast to begin with, why is it that you decided to start researching in this area? Uh, well, it's very personal. When I turned 40 years of age, I decided to try to reconcile with my father. I was, uh, to put it discreetly, a very obnoxious, arrogant teenager and my father and I had been estranged for about 20 years. And so I decided to contact him and get back with, together with him. But this meant picking up an old gift that he had given me when I turned 21 and I had rejected out of hand. He had given me a rifle. And at the time I was a student at University of California, Berkeley living in uh, rented housing with two or three other roommates, had no knowledge or interest in guns. And I looked at this rifle and said, this is nuts, there's no way. Anyway, I, I rejected it, not even politely. So at 40, I went back to pick it up. But that meant understanding the gun laws and the rules, first of all, because I didn't want to go get it and break some law I had no idea about. So I had to research California, Oregon, Washington, Canada, United States laws, just so I could go get this old rifle. Anyway, I, I managed to get it back to, to Coquitlam uh, legally. And then I looked at it and said, first of all, the rules seem really complicated. I don't understand why so much silliness about this thing. And also, what is it? I don't understand what this is. It's a rifle, okay. so. 
why this rifle, how does it work, what, all those kind of questions. So I started digging into it and asking people questions about guns, gun laws, uh, Canada, US, and I got, a, a, as you would imagine, a lot of different opinions and strong feelings. Guns are horrible, guns are wonderful, guns, gun laws are stupid, gun laws are necessary. So I'm thinking, I don't understand. So that really irritated and interested me. So I started digging. That's a remarkable story. No, I think people are <laughs> hoping you did ultimately reconcile with dad, right? Yes. Okay. yes. And it, it was beautiful. When he handed me the rifle and I'm holding this thing, my first question is, dad, I don't understand. What is it? And he, the, the look in his face as he explained to his overeducated, arrogant son what a rifle was, my dad, who flunked out of grade eight uh, and didn't have uh, any formal education, uh, was always overawed by my over-credentialed life. And that was a plus at first, but trying to get back to him, I wanted to really understand. And he just really blossomed. And I could see that he he had he knew things he but well, this was a thing he cared about knew about and i could learn from and so that of course was a good basis for getting back together with him take me back to your 20 year old and 30 year old and 40 year old self because i think that you've touched on something so important that there is a bit of a, a generational divide there's also an urban rural divide mm -hmm. i would hazard a guess that if you went to most young people in our major centers in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, they would say, why does anyone need a gun anyway? I think it's sort of reflexive that, well, I live in an urban center, the police keep me safe. If I don't need a gun, you don't need a gun either. Can, can, you, can you tell us what your thinking was before you started doing this research? Um, well, I basically thought guns were dangerous things that people who had them were, were probably dangerous, that all I knew about guns, I either learned from television or newspapers. I had no personal experience. I didn't know any hunters or target shooters or, or people who owned guns for self-defense, nothing. Uh, so all I had was second and third hand uh, knowledge and that, is the bath of, of, of misinformation that most people have. My father, in contrast, had grew up in a rural area. And to him, uh, it was really like a, a, a Protestant bar mitzvah, a coming of age for a man or, a, or a, a woman would be to own a gun, would be to res be responsible for themselves and their, and their knowledge. Uh, and I mean, I don't think my dad would use that language, but he did see it as a coming of age thing. So when, when I rejected it, he saw me as rejecting maturity. <laughs> That's remarkable that you came back. That's a beautiful story. Can, can you talk about um, the firearm itself? Is it a family heirloom? Was it used for hunting? Was it used for target shooting? Like what, what, what was the, the, the family significance of it? Oh, no. Um, because my family name is Mauser, my father bought me uh, a Mauser rifle. And at the time, we're talking not too long after World War II, the market was flooded with uh, war surplus firearms. 
uh, just like Canada was awash with Lee Enfield World War II rifles, the U.S. was flush with uh, Mauser K98 and Springfields and various kinds of uh, inex inexpensive uh, war rifles that, again, at the time, people would buy these uh, rather inexpensively and then sporterize them so they could go hunting. It was essentially an inexpensive way to go hunting. Instead of paying uh, for those kind of times, two or three hundred dollars for a fancy rifle, you could buy a fifty dollar, hundred dollar used rifle and fix it up and that would work. So what my dad got me was a Mauser rifle because of the family name. Let's talk a bit of, a more, if we can, because I want to firmly cement for people some of the emotional connection that people have to firearms ownership. We've done a great job of explaining that so far, but there's also practical reasons why people have firearms. That so obviously you talked about the gun collection. Um, there's t tons of of gun collectors. I've been to many gun shows and I've seen the, the incredible collections that some people have. The war memorabilia. You've got people who are war historians, and there's probably all kinds of reasons why people would want to own them for that reason. But but talk to me a, a bit more about um, that sort of the sport shooting realm. You must have come across folks in that realm. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine, I think, for someone who hasn't participated in it as a sport to understand that it, it really is. I mean, I think we still have an Olympic sport that includes a firearm, don't we? Uh, in, the, in the winter games. So there, uh, I, my yoga instructor participates in, in competitive shooting. So I've known, I've known people who are in the sport shooting realm. And if you don't experience it, you might not understand why someone is attracted to it. Do, are you able to, to help make that connection? Well, there's uh, several reasons for owning a firearm. Uh, there's more people own firearms in Canada than play hockey or golf. Over 2 million people have firearms licenses and something like one point four or 1.5 million play hockey or, or golf. So there's a large number of people in Canada today who, who own firearms. The most uh, widespread reason is hunting. Uh, uh, a hunting rifle is, is a common uh, thing in many households across Canada. Uh, when I did my surveys back in the 90s, there something like 10 or 15% of households in Vancouver would have a gun, but 90, 75% to 90% of households outside of Victoria, Vancouver would have a gun in the household. And this is mostly uh, hunting. More recently, target shooting, sport shooting has come uh, to be popular. And again, there's like, 1.3 million people say they own a gun for sport shooting. Mm -hmm. And this could be a handgun or a rifle or a shotgun. But uh, there's a lot of games that one can go into with this. Shoot uh, uh, clays or shoot uh, targets. Uh, there's uh, practical pistol shooting where people try to uh, do various scenarios where you go into a room and try to save a hostage or shoot the bad guy and various kinds of defensive uh, strategy games that are played with this. So there's a sport uh, uh, value that uh, in Canada is legally the only reason you can give for owning a gun. 
but many people own a firearm for personal protection. Uh, one winter, my wife and I went up country and spent it in a uh, uh, cabin. And the woman who owned the cabin had two daughters. And so she would invite us to dinner. And she said she had a 12-gauge shotgun by one door and a, a Lee Enfield by the other. And they just sat there loaded. Her girls knew how to be around them safely. And occasionally there'd be yahoos that would come by and bother her. And she'd just stand at the door with her gun. Hmm. They'd go away. Now, that's the question. Is that even allowed? And we're going to get into the state of the law. But I want to just add one other piece, of course, which is indigenous heritage as well, because it's interesting to me that when new laws come in, they often do a carve out for our First Nations communities. And so I think there's sort of a recognition that those who have an historic usage of a firearm, those who use it for hunting, those who live remotely, those who live in rural, those who might have a protection issue, there is sort of a strange recognition that that exists in uh, Indigenous communities. But how odd to think that there isn't the same kind of understanding in uh, in, in rural and remote non-Indigenous communities. That, that, that seems odd to me. But are you able to, to, to tell us why that, that might be? Well... First of all, there's a lot of similarity between rural people, whether they're indigenous or, or, or settlers. They share the lifestyle, they share interests, and they share hobbies. Uh, it seems to be sort of bizarre that uh, uh, people who on the far left end of the spectrum uh, would be willing to accept the validity of beliefs of certain groups, but not others. I have met uh, radical leftists who thought it was perfectly reasonable for Sandinistas in Nicaragua to have guns to protect themselves against the evil government, but reject that argument for Americans or Canadians. Uh, and so many leftists think it's wonderful that natives would have guns for hunting, but horrible that not natives would have guns for hunting. Why? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> let me let me ask you a little more, if I can, about hunting. Do you hunt yourself? I mean, now that you've become a firearms owner, do, are, do you engage in any collection or a military, or not military, but uh, sports oh. shooting? I was just thinking military because there are military sports shooting events as well, and we'll get to that in a minute, especially with this new legislation. Or do you hunt? Did you pick up any of the of the of the of the sports Ooh. or pastimes? Well, when I started getting involved with firearms, trying to figure it out. Uh, I met a few of my students and my colleagues who hunted and who sports yet. Uh, so I started getting involved with various things. So I tried out virtually everything. Uh, I was involved in uh, uh, PPC, practical pistol competition for a while. And I hunt. I've shot a few deer, a bear. Um, and uh, my son and I, one of my sons have, and I have gone hunting. And he got a deer that year, not me, but it was great fun to be out there teaching him how to how to be a, a gun owner and a hunter. It, uh, it's, so, it's so remarkable to hear you, 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 a graduate of Berkeley, who in his later days in, in uh, as a middle-aged person decided to take up hunting. It's probably not a very common story, but can you maybe, can you talk about that? Because I have a I have a family member who enjoys hunting and he's taught his, his son how to hunt and they, they, they like to hunt deer and they strip it down and they've got beautiful game meat in their freezer. And, uh, and, and I understand 
why some people prefer that kind of beat. But I think that there is also, again, if we're talking to the Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal crowd, it seems, well, wait a minute, food comes from the grocery store. Why would you even need to hunt anyway? What, what, is, the, what is the attraction of hunting? Well, my son is the one who gave me the modern urban suburban idea for why one would hunt. Uh, the meat has no additives. The meat is perfectly clean in the sense that uh, uh, you know exactly what went into it. If you harvest a deer or a bear or a moose, uh, you can see what it eats. You can you you disassemble it. You uh, look at its stomach and see what its contacts are. You have to learn how to evaluate the meat to see if it's diseased. Um, the, the amount of knowledge that goes into hunting successfully is incredible. Taking a, an exam and getting a hunting license is just the beginning of a lifetime of, of knowledge and study. Uh, you have to understand the animal, understand the habitat, uh, and then once you shoot it, you have to understand how to take it apart, how to preserve it, how to how to butcher it, uh, and and well, first you got to get it out of the ground where you shot it into your truck and back home and into the freezer. That turns out to be very complex. But essentially, the the goal is for many young people to get non-chemically, non-processed meat. It's not feedlot. It's not uh, stuff full of hormones or whatever. It's completely natural. That's one I of the. I hadn't considered that there might be um, sort of like a that's a, an environmentalist aspect that counters the because most of the um, animal rights or most of the environmentalists I know become animal rights activists and vegans. I hadn't considered that there was kind of like a clean living mm, mm. kind of approach that they got into the hunting community. You gave such a great description there. I wonder if you could maybe walk us through some of the, in a similar way, what the attraction is for people who want to um, own firearms for collection purposes, for instance. Have you seen some interesting collections? Give us an idea of what that passion is about. Well, the first and most obvious way is that you inherit an uh, old firearm from uh, a, a deceased relative. In my case, that's my relative wasn't deceased, but that's essentially what got me started. But many uh, sons, daughters, uh, nieces inherit a rifle or a handgun that their great-grandfather, grandfather, grandmother owned. Um, I knew a, a family in Ottawa whose uncle used to be an employee of the railroad and carried a small handgun to protect him uh, along the railroad. Because mm -hmm. Canadians used to carry guns uh, casually for personal protection uh, quite uh, frequently up until the 60s or so. Huh. And so they had inherited this small handgun, which now would be prohibited because it was a pocket-sized handgun, and therefore it would have fallen afoul of Alan Rock's ban in the in the 1990s, where he banned half of all the handguns in the country because they were small, which you know, is we hilarious had, because we had in a, Australia, they banned half the handguns because they were large. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We had the same story. We inherited a handgun that had a 
a stamp on it from a it would have been from a French soldier that was it was stamped with the German eagle and it was it, it was one of those weird ones where it looked like it might the barrel might be too long so we just donated it to the military museums rather than than deal with the sure. with the issues associated with it. and I think that's part of this issue of regulation if they make it so difficult to own firearms I think that's part of the strategy of getting people to give them up but before we leave it one more because I've participated in a couple of shooting events um, so I've gone to, there is a, a really wonderful shooting range in Calgary and I've shot firearms there. I have, um, there was a, a uh, in Spruce Grove, I think there was a, a contest that they used to have where you got to shoot military uh, firearms. And then um, I also participated one day in, there's a training center in uh, near my home where they were having sort of a family training day, come out practice some skeet shooting and also do some trap shooting. And so those are the the times that I've participated in, in shooting sports. And so I can, I can understand the attraction, but maybe you can talk to me about why people make that such a, a, a strong hobby. Cause you know, it's funny. No one ever talks about saying, well, I don't play hockey. Therefore we should confiscate everybody else's hockey sticks or no one should be allowed to play hockey because I don't play hockey. And yet it seems like we don't have that same level of respect for people who choose this as a pastime. And I'm wondering if you can impart on why, to people why it is people feel so strongly about it as a sport. Well, it's a culture. Uh, people grow up by and large and they accept the values of their culture as being good, if not the best, and so people who grow up with guns uh, believe that guns are part of life and part of uh, uh, what makes life worth living. So when you grow up with that and you inherit a gun or because you, you learn about them, then you, you value that. Uh, so, so many people, once they start uh, understanding about guns, they then want to have um, an, another one. For example, a gun is a tool that does a specific uh, job. And so if you have one gun, it does that job, whatever it is that it's designed for. And so you think, oh, look, there's another job that would have another type of gun. So if you have a rifle, you think, oh, look, there's a shotgun that I could shoot. And that would be quite a different experience, but similar knowledge. Or, or a handgun, I could use a handgun for, for sport shooting. Or if I'm going to go off in the in the wilderness and hunt, uh, there's bears, and uh, I may need something to protect myself when I'm down taking care of the meat and the rifles up against the tree. So I might want to have a handgun in my back pocket. So once you get one, you realize there's other reasons for other similar things. Um, um, so I that would be one of one of my arguments. And I would just say it's gratifying when you have shot a, a handgun to get the bullseye. It's because uh, it's not easy to do. <laughs> I, I, I think that's it. Well, it's easy to think that uh, something you've never done is easy. Look at all those spectators in football or soccer or stadium who think they know better than all the coaches and the players. But once you try to do it, you learn that it's a challenge. Uh, I remember being really frustrated trying to hit the target when I first picked up my first gun. And so that again, motivated me to improve and got me to think about how I could improve the rifle or get a better rifle or get better ammunition or practice more or all the various ways one can improve. 
No, this interview would be over if the if this was all that firearms were used for, because I think you've done a wonderful job explaining why it is the firearms community feels so strongly about protecting their heritage, protecting their sport, protecting their uh, ability to, to, to go out and harvest food for themselves. But you know the word we haven't used so far, and I do it deliberately. I always try to refer to a firearm or a gun, and I never use the term weapon. As soon, but I notice that the gun control advocates, whenever they're referring to firearms, they always frame it in terms of it being a weapon. And, and there always seems to be historically circumstances where firearms are used irresponsibly. But it's so interesting to me that the knee jerk reaction is because that incident happened, therefore we need to ban guns. Because if we ban guns, that incident would have happened. It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument that you don't see made very often. You could you you never hear someone saying that with car accidents. Car accidents kill people. Therefore, if we banned cars, we'd have no car accidents. It's absurd, actually, to even think someone would make that argument. And yet, it is made with with firearms. Why do you think that there's this difference? Well, I think it goes back to the distinction you you made earlier that uh, urban people grow up without any experience of guns. And so the people who don't like guns or who are trying to increase gun control want to frighten those people by trying to imagine the worst possible uh, aspect of a firearm. Uh, historically, of course, firearms are indeed weapons. Uh, they're very useful for forming governments, for overthrowing governments, for defending governments. Uh, wars are fought with weapons not just guns, but knives, swords, uh, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, certainly, historically, firearms are primarily weapons. But for our urban person, naive person, the weapon is scary. They don't realize that they, as citizens or residents, have a duty to defend their country. Part of the responsibility of all of us is to defend the country to which we have receive some benefits. And that would mean holding weapons to protect your family, yourself, your country. That's so interesting, because I would say that that is probably not the common view in Canada, but it is the common view elsewhere. Um, I, want, I wanted to know if you knew much about Switzerland, and certainly Israel. I think those are both countries that I think of where virtually everyone, if not everyone, would have had some kind of firearms training or firearms in their home. Because I thought that in Switzerland, because they're a neutral nation, they have a citizen militia. And so there is sort of an expectation that if you're called to arms, you're going to be able to. And then they also have mandatory military service, as I understand it, in Israel. So I would imagine there's a very, also a very high level of firearms ownership. Are you able to, to tell me about the difference in culture? Well, it's not just those two countries, but other countries uh, in Europe... For example, Norway, Finland, France, uh, all learned that they can be invaded and they have to rely upon their citizens to defend their country. So both Norway and Finland, as well as Switzerland and Israel, have widespread uh, involvement of the citizens with their military and see the citizens realize it's their duty to be involved with uh, protecting the country. Uh, same in the United States. Uh, it's only England and Canada, Australia, New Zealand that have tried to 
uh, avoid the notion that citizens are responsible. That's so interesting, uh, you know, because as we're watching what's unfolding in the news as well with Ukraine, one of the first actions taken was to distribute, I think, Kalishnikovs to the citizenry. And I don't know how many of them are trained in how to use firearms, but it was uh, the, all the men, 18 to 60, were called to active military duty to, to guard against the Russian invasion. Maybe part of it is that we can't imagine a circumstance where we would be invaded. And therefore, do we need, do we have that need in, in Canada? Uh, maybe uh, the UK, surprisingly, because of their history, but they are an island. Maybe they think we're an island, we're protected. Maybe New Zealand and Australia have the same thing. I'm just trying to, to figure out why in the Commonwealth nations you mentioned, there's such a different culture. Can you, can you trace that? Well, I think part of it goes back to the revulsion that the world elites felt after World War I about the horrendous stupidity of hundreds of thousands, millions of people being killed in a near useless war. And then again, World War II. So the elites have gradually become more and more pacifistic. And the United Nations argues for uh, common security, that is not relying upon citizens, but are all paid armies to defend, uh, and then groups of nations paid armies. So it's a whole modern trend for a hundred years to uh, uh, play down the relationship of the citizen and defending his or her country. Uh, I think part of it's that, uh, but essentially look at the double standard. Uh, the liberals are, are quickly urging the Ukrainians to arm, shipping arms to Ukraine, but at the same time, they're confiscating firearms from their own citizens. That's so, remarkable. It is remarkable, especially, you know, it, you could perhaps make the argument that only trained soldiers should have firearms if you were investing money in your armed forces. And it doesn't, and that's an area where we've had underinvestment in the last number of years too. What well, also, yeah. Mm -hmm. One more thing I want to ask you on that because it's related is it, we're we're right next door to the United States and the United States also has a very a different attitude about firearms ownership. We're, and it's enshrined in their founding documents, which is fascinating to me. That, can you can you describe to me what that um, the, the Second Amendment says and what it actually means? Because oftentimes people will say, well, that is outdated or we're not looking at it through the lens of modern times. And I'm kind of interested in, in seeing if it has stood the test of time. Well, the Second Amendment is essentially uh, an amendment that says government should not make laws that restrict the natural right of people uh, they say Americans, uh, to defend themselves against tyranny or personal attack. Hmm. So, so whether it's a natural right or a God-given right, all people have the right to defend themselves against uh, attack. So if someone wants to rape you, beat you up, kill you, rob your stuff, you have a right to stop them from doing that. And the Second Amendment says, that the government shouldn't impede your right to do that. It also says, and primarily says, that the citizens are the ones in charge of their government. That if they decide to not um, go along with what the government's doing, if they believe the government is tyrannical, they can overthrow it. 
It's a right to overthrow your government. Mm. Now, there's very few governments in the world, none that I know of, that uh, will admit that it's their citizens' right to overthrow them. But that's inherent in the, the U.S. Second Amendment. Do we um, do we have anything similar to that in Canada? No. I, I, nothing like that. Not even in our, our original founding documents, because the world was quite different in the 1800s. And I, uh, with the repatriation of the Constitution, as late as it was, especially under the pri prime minister we had at the time with Trudeau and the factors that you were talking about, the revulsion of, of war because of World War One, World War Two having an impact. I just wondered if there'd be anything we would point to historically that would allow us to, to claim a right of self-defense. Uh, the historic English Bill of Rights included uh, a right to arms to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. So because both Canada and the United States are children of the same mother, England, they have in both countries have inherited those rights. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and uh, a few other key parliamentarians in the 19th century refused to pass gun laws that would, in their opinion, restrict people's rights or Englishmen's rights to uh, defend themselves. Uh, historically, again, Canadian lawmakers were perfectly happy to limit not English people, the rights of non-English people. So Irish, Italian, Ukrainian, Chinese, Japanese were not seen, Métis, uh, were not seen as Englishmen, and therefore they did not have those rights. Um, that turned out to be uh, uh, a distinction that got bigger and, and more extreme. Gradually, the Canadian federal government passed laws against everybody, Englishmen included, and the government took over the power. So that was a right we had in the 19th century, or at least Canadian parliamentarians believed we had that we lost uh, throughout the early part of the 20th century. And finally, when after post-World War II, when our government was so uh, enamored with uh, cradle-to-grave uh, security, and we had institutions, the police uh, welfare, that were so strong, they took over that, and nobody had those rights. It's remarkable. I want to I want to trace through some of that history of where gun control came from because when I was on the Herald editorial board in the uh, early 2000s, we used to do a century in review because the paper had been around for some time. So we'd go into the archives. We'd say, what were they saying a hundred years ago today? And I remember one editorial being written where they were clutching their pearls about how outrageous it was that eight-year-olds were able to go down to the five and dime and buy rifles. And this was going to create problems in society. I thought, okay, well, who knew that eight-year-olds would be able to buy rifles back in the day? And that wasn't that long ago. But that was sort of the early gun control movement right there saying maybe kids under the age of 10 should be restricted from being able to freely purchase firearms. But it really, as you say, began in earnest uh, in, in the 1960s. Whoa. And I, I want to understand a little about the history in Canada in particular. Were, were we at the cutting edge first in that and others led or were we following others? Well, remember, we're talking about English men. And the concern was that young boys could not, could buy guns. Girls, women could not. <laughs> so they went the wrong way. Rather than liberating the rules to create equality for everyone, they said, okay, we'll create equality. Now no one gets a chance to, to really buy them. But 
I think let's maybe I should choose a touchstone and you can tell me if I'm choosing the right one. Because the thing that I think people misunderstand about the current initiatives being put forward to ban military style assault weapons is the way it keeps getting characterized is there already was a, uh, a ban on automatic uh, firearms weapons, I guess I could call them in 1990, 1977. So can you take us back in history and tell us what was going on in, in 1977 that created that? Well, in 1977, fully automatic firearms were banned. Doesn't matter what uh, des design they had, but most fully automatic or military rifles, so it was not even considered. Uh, during, during the 70s, we had concerns with uh, uh, American crime, and we had also Quebec separatists. And so one of the arguments was that automatic weapons were potentially uh, dangerous for uh, the public. And there was, I think, a bank robbery in Montreal that involved uh, uh, a, a so-called uh, uh, assault rifle. So talk and, to me about what, what makes a, a fully automatic firearm okay. so dangerous. I guess you know what I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of um, if, if I've ever seen one being shot other than in Hollywood movies. I think that that's sort of what I have in my mind is that okay. someone pulls down the trigger and they've got the big long chain of, uh, uh, of bullets and then you're, you're shooting a hundred rounds at once. That's sort of the image in my mind. But, but what was the typical type of automatic firearm that we had back then? Well, first of all, fully automatic means you pull the trigger and the firearm will shoot and then reload, shoot again, reload, shoot again, however much ammunition you have in whatever feeding mechanism, either a magazine or a belt in your example, uh, it would have, it would just keep shooting until you release the trigger where it runs out of ammunition. These are various kinds. Uh, there are crew-fed weapons, which are maybe table-sized firearms, where it takes two or three people to service and hold and 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 shoot these. And then we have submachine guns, and then we have uh, uh, military, modern military rifles like the M16 or M14 Canada C7 that are rifle size but fully automatic that is to say they keep shooting as long as you hold the trigger down okay so uh, when, when when we hear our politicians say no one needs to have these kinds of firearms i think those are the kinds of firearms people are thinking of and yet if they've already banned in 19 been banned in 1977 right. practically yeah, speaking but, who in canada even owns them today uh well it, when politicians talk about banning guns, what they mean is that previously law-abiding people who own them can register them and keep them, just that now they have to be kept in a safe and held under strict uh, rules. So there are maybe a few hundred people in Canada who, who own fully automatic firearms, and they're registered and licensed and they, once a year in Alberta, they come out and shoot and they invite people to come shoot with them. Uh, but the problem is there are rifles that look like those rifles that are not fully automatic. They're semi-automatic or not even semi-automatic. They may shoot BBs or paintball, but they have the same style. Maybe there's a bayonet lug or they have a 
a big box magazine or it has a handle or whatever cosmetic uh, attribute the manufacturers think would have people think that these are similar. Um, and so that's why the government has banned what they call, quote, assault style weapons. And the style, of course, is the key. It's not an assault weapon. It's in the same style as, but therefore not one. Well, and before, so, I, before I leave the question of the 1977 ban, would, is that, was that a reasonable restriction on a person's right to own property? Well, it, again, if you think that the primary responsibility of a citizen is to defend the country, then there should be some kind of way of training those citizens prior to need, prior to a war or a revolution, so that they could come and in aid of that country. So when I started discovering guns, Canada had a system whereby civilians could join with the military, shoot fully automatic, train with the military, as a way of, of developing support for the for the country in case of ever dire need. But um, uh, in terms of practical use, uh, I can't see why people would find a practical use for a fully automatic firearm other than the eventual possibility of defending the country. Could, could I ask you, do you think that there would be any appetite for that today? It sounds, it's so interesting. It, it's all context, right? As you say that, um, in some nations, they have a very visceral understanding of the citizens' role in defending the nation. I don't know that we have that in Canada. I, do, I think that there's a, a sense that people who feel compelled will join armed forces and be deployed overseas. I don't know that anybody really feels viscerally like Canadian civilians should be trained to work alongside with soldiers in the potential defense of the nation. Now, maybe we're dreaming in Technicolor to think we're not at risk, considering we have a disputed territory with Russia in our northern regions. So maybe there's an opening to make that argument. But I'm wondering if you if you think that it would be a step too far for Canadians to even propose that. Well, first of all, you and I have a certain group of friends and contacts that we talk to which obviously are not representative of the entire breadth and length of Canadian public opinion. So in my surveys, I found a, a large minority of people who do feel that Canada should invest more in its military and would be willing to get involved as a, a, some kind of auxiliary or some kind of reserve force. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, Canadian government has been over the last hundred years downplaying the need, downplaying the, the amount of money. Uh, the current government has been criticized repeatedly by NATO and the EU for not investing up to the agreed upon 2% of the GDP standard, which is again, pretty minor, uh, but uh, Norway, uh, Finland, Israel, U.S., Switzerland, all have much larger budgets than that. And in, in Asia, Singapore has a much larger budget than that. Mm -hmm. But again, all those countries realize that sometimes their neighbors are not friendly. Exactly. Okay, so let's go through a little bit more of the history. So 1977, fully automatic firearms are banned. Uh, but then there was also another major uh, piece of legislation that came through, incidentally, through 
uh, a conservative government. Kim Campbell's, uh, uh, I think, was justice minister at the time. People will remember these names. Those who are in the firearms community know the know the names of the bills, and I think we still refer to them by the bill name. So I think that one was C seventeen. That's tell, right. Tell me what that one did. Well, that one uh, upgraded the old firearms acquisition certificate and it required uh, a course to be passed in, in firearm safety and a photograph to be put on your, your FAC acquisition certificate. Uh, it also banned a large number of military style firearms and restricted a larger number. Um, this had not yet been fully implemented in by 94 when the liberals came in and introduced C-68, another tightening. And this time they, the liberals replaced the acquisition certificate with a license. Uh, uh, acquisition certificate meant that you had been screened by the police and did not have a criminal record and could buy a, a firearm. You only needed this to buy something or to inherit a, a firearm. The license meant you had to keep the license current and if it expired, whatever guns you owned were now illegally owned and the police could come into your house, arrest you and take them. So a firearms license forces you to renew this every five years or else you become a criminal. Now, let me put, uh, let me ask you if there's a problem with the possession and acquisition license as it's now called, because uh, I ended up getting one because I wanted to, like you, go through the process and figure out what hoops my mm -hmm. fellow citizens were jumping through to see how onerous it was. And um, I don't mind having taken the uh, the hunter training course. I thought that it was actually a really good course for me to take. Um, I don't mind having a, a plastic ID that has my my face on it. My driver's license does as well. And I do renew my fire my uh, driver's license every five years because you know you, you your look changes, especially when you get to be my age every five years. So I I don't find that to be too much of an imposition for me to be able to go out if I, if I choose to, to want to purchase firearms or, or purchase ammunition. Uh, but is it still a problem? Is, is that where the, the, the dispute well, there's, is? There's a, there's a couple of problems with the uh, license. First of all, it makes a normal, non-threatening group of people subject to criminal sanctions for not filling out paperwork. Mm. So it criminalizes normal behavior. That, that's a principle that is typically considered not democratic. Second, everybody who has a firearms license is checked by the police every day. Every day. Uh, they run your name through the uh, bureaucracy, the court system to see if there's some kind of a criminal charge that has been brought against you, uh, holding your wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend has complained about you. Um, and that means they can come to your house and, and take all your stuff and put you in jail anytime. My goodness. So yes. let me let me see, is there a way to then create a license that is like a perpetual license? So once you've gone through and demonstrated that you've got the training and you've uh, demonstrated that you are an upstanding citizen, could you just have a perpetual license? And so they didn't have that potential for it to be rescinded every five years? Would that, that solve would some be, of the problem? That would be better than a five-year renewable. Hmm. Uh, everybody gets older if they live and they get 
more and more ill. So if you're in the hospital at the wrong time, or if you uh, are sick or not all that uh, well, you have to fill out your paperwork or you become a criminal. So while you're in the mm -hmm. hospital recovering, you are now judged to be a criminal and, and they can come arrest you. Uh, and then, then it, all your permits are, are invalid. So you lose the rights to own the guns that you have other than, than the most simple rifle. So you could lose a lot. But the problem with any kind of law is that it changes. So if we could have a five-year license changed to a lifetime, it could be changed in the future to a one-year license or a two-year license or whatever, 10-year, whatever. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to urge or even require people to have firearm safety course. If you have to, if you want to buy a, a, a firearm or a, a car or get married or do any of the complicated things that people do, you should know what you're doing and know how to do that. And so encouraging people to know about and how to, how to do something wisely that they're deciding to do is a good thing. But the government need not be in that. Why not have gun clubs do that? Why not have uh, 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 groups of people who sell their services to teach people because people need to know, people want to teach. And so there's all kinds of reasons. That's how it's done in the US. Well, then uh, let, me, let me circle back on, because I think it's a good example to be comparing the uh, licensing and registration of firearms to what happens in a driver's license and registration. Because the, the model they were bringing through is similar and they were trying to make the same arguments. Well, you have to have a license to drive a car. You should have to have a license to own a gun. You have to register your car every year. Why shouldn't you have to register your firearms every year? So we've talked a bit about a different approach to licensing, but now that people understand all of the ways in which people use firearms, that there's a sporting use, an antique use, a hunting use, um, it seems like, and there's multiple, own, many people own multiple firearms, I think it kind of puts into perspective just how onerous that long gun registry was in, in 1995. We've already had a handgun registry. You'll have to tell me if there are problems with that or if that's legitimate, but explain what went so wrong with the long gun registry. Cause I, I'm not even sure if it's gone because I think that the, there was, I thought Quebec won some case that said that they should be able to keep the data I know that Stephen Harper wanted it purged, but you know what? Governments aren't very good at purging information once they've collected it on you. And so I, I want to understand um, your perspective on that. Is, is a handgun registry, is that legitimate, but a long gun registry is not? Are they both illegitimate? How do you see it? Well, the problem with registering is that gives government control over the things that are registered. So if things are registered, the government can decide to confiscate them. So handguns were registered in the 30s, and over the decades after that, the government decided to prohibit uh, various classes, culminating in uh, 95 when Alan Rock confiscated more than half of the handguns that were registered. He didn't take guns away from criminals. He took guns from people who had registered them. And the same thing now with uh, 2020, ban of assault style firearms the government banned uh, 
somewhere between 100 and 500,000 uh, firearms claiming that uh, they were dangerous. Uh, so if it's registered, they know where it is, who owns it, and they can come get it. So that's one of the problems of regist with registering. Um, the other thing is all this bureaucracy costs money. All this bureaucracy indicates that the government cares about something or doesn't care about something. So firearms owners who are law-abiding and responsible citizens and contribute to their community ask the, the perfectly legitimate question, why is the government spending two, three, six billion dollars to make my life more complicated and not spending the money putting violent criminals in jail, uh, helping violent criminals in order to get jobs afterwards, helping teenagers not to get sucked into gangs. Why is there not $6 billion into this? Why are they focusing on me? Well, and, and those, are, and those are two reasons. Those are two good ones. And we'll talk more about what should be done to address the real issue of, of gun violence. We'll get to that in a minute. The, the, the question um, that is interesting to me, though, too, is th that I think that there has been this notion that because you have to register a vehicle, you should register a gun. But you made a good point there. We've never seen uh, vehicle registration lead to mass confiscation. They've Not never good. said, we've discovered that cherry red vehicles are involved in more speeding and more uh, injury accidents than anyone else. So we're going to start confiscating cherry red vehicles because that must go to the character of the person who owns that type of, of car. But there, there is this, this, um, this assertion that the firearms community has made that registration leads to confiscation that I don't know if those who are in urban environments fully appreciate. That it's because that's, that's how it's happened. Do you think that is the intention of registration? Or what do they think, if you were to put your, eye, your, 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 um, your, your mind in the mind of, of those who are making decisions on, on registration, what is it that they think that they're going to achieve with that? What outcome are they trying to achieve if it's not ultimately to start saying these types of guns are allowed and those ones are not? Well, I don't really think that the goal of gun control is to reduce criminal violence, mm -hmm. either uh, against women or men or anybody. Uh, governments, um, to, to put it bluntly, the elite, lives in its own bubble and the elite talks to each other and they all share common beliefs. And one of the common beliefs that uh, educated, uh, credentialed government people believe is that guns are dangerous and violent and should be controlled. So it is of itself a good thing to tighten up on guns and they congratulate each other for doing this wonderful thing to helping people. They don't do studies. They don't evaluate the effects. The goal is basically that guns are bad and that more regulations are good. Uh, that, that's a self-serving, self-satisfying uh, approach. Uh, a second thing is, as I argued, I think, earlier, that government worries about insurrection. Mm -hmm. The government is frightened always of having a bunch of people who might be angry and armed. Uh, for example, the trucker convoy in Ottawa was pacific. They had uh, hot tubs and, and bubble palaces and children and everything. But police and government, quite legitimately, 
worry about the potential of violence and the potential of overthrow. And so they don't know what the intentions are, but they know the mm -hmm. capabilities. The town is now occupied by thousands of people who don't like them, and that could be dangerous. So those two reasons, I think, drive it. Uh, the, the, the upper class cultural values of guns are bad, and uh, the notion the government of insecurity and insurrection. There's also one other aspect, which is the government should do something when some horrific incident occurs. And you've looked at a couple of these these gun purchase programs. I know they're called gun buyback programs often in the media, but the the government didn't own them in the first place. So they're not <laughs> buying them back. So let's be like so I just want to be precise in my language. It's a, a government buying program that's a confiscation and there may be compensation resulting from it. But there's been precedent for this uh, because of uh, Australia and the UK. And in 1996, a horrific incident where 35 people were murdered in Australia. And then in 1997, uh, Dunblane, Scotland, 16 people killed. And those seem to have been turning points. Now, we've had our own here as well. We had Ecole Polytechnique um, and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the massacre there of women. We had um, more recently the uh, uh, the uh, Nova Scotia shooter as well as what happened on, uh, why am I missing the name of the Avenue in Toronto? That was also a very key moment in our history where we had a, a, a shooter on the loose. And I think that actually was the one that, that caused the uh, most recent legislation to come through. And so it's one, one of those things where I think when something horrific, a mass shooting occurs, and sadly, because we're, no, we're right next to the United States, we see a lot of that coverage. I think that reflexively, people want their politicians to do something about it. And it's for those who are unfamiliar with all of the things we've talked about, unfamiliar with uh, firearms culture and the community and the safety culture, I think it's just easy to say, let's just round up the guns, get them off the street, let's stop this crime. So I, I wonder I wonder if there's a, another way that that could be approached instead. Is there um, <clears throat> let's let's first talk through whether gun confiscation and compensation programs work. So let's talk about that and then we'll get to the what could we do instead. So you, you've gone through it in quite a bit of detail looking what happened in uh, Australia and the UK. So, so just give us a bit of a, a starting point. What did they hope they were going to do? What did they accomplish and what was the outcome? Well, basically, the goal of the firearms confiscations in Australia, New Zealand, or, or Canada is the, the claim is to improve public safety, that these uh, firearms are pose a threat and could be, not that they have been, but could be used to uh, injure people, kill people. And there's some horrific example of some person who has run amok and killed a number of people, whether it's in Nova Scotia, Tasmania, or uh, in New Zealand. And when you have a, a, a shocking situation like that, it's perfectly natural to look for a simple solution. And the gun, because of urbanites' ignorance about guns and unfamiliarity, is a, is a nice, convenient devil to blame. In all of these situations, we can see that 
another approach would be why did that person have a gun was not there some gun control already that this person was allowed to own a gun through accident in new zealand for example the police did not follow the stated procedures for allowing the mass murderer to have a gun in New Zealand, I'm sorry, in Australia, the same thing. The fellow who went and killed all the people in Tasmania uh, was well known to the police, but they did not exercise the then existent laws to remove his guns. We do not know enough about the fellow in Nova Scotia, but there are lots of questions about how it is that the police, who knew that he had illegal guns, uh, who knew that he had a fake police car, they were actually paying him money, apparently, uh, as an informant of some sort. So one thing, although this is much more complicated than blaming guns, is to look for some fault in the bureaucracy that could be fixed. Uh, it's not necessarily sweeping new kinds of gun laws, but simply looking at the way in which the bureaucracy has not worked up to date. A third kind of notion is to look at the nature of the people and see if there's some general program that one could, could do that would help people become more familiar with guns and so they could defend themselves, they could know about guns. Uh, we could just educate the public in a way that would improve long-term public safety. Obviously, blaming guns is simpler and wins more votes, but uh, there are alternative ways to think about trying to uh, solve this kind of social problem. Well, and I think the other point with the Nova Scotia shooter, not only was he known to police, but as I understand it, uh, the firearms he owned, he owned illegally. And none of the things that we're talking about is are addressing issues of the no. illegal firearms ownership. It's all looking at legal firearm ownership. I just wanted to make sure that uh, I, I put this one on the table because I think this was the key incident. The 2018 Toronto shooting known locally as the Danforth shooting there was a mass shooting that happened on Danforth Avenue in Greektown in Toronto, killed uh, two people, wounded 13 using a Smith & Wesson M&P 40 caliber handgun. And I, I don't know if the shooter there, uh, he, if he, I think he also falls into the category that he had the handgun illegally, he did not have a legal right to own that. Uh, the brother of that shooter, the Danforth shooter, was a known uh, drug dealer and had an illegal handgun that he had left at the house where the shooter then found and used. Hmm. So the gun was illegal in the brother's possession, illegal in the shooter's possession. And their drug, this is an example of the, of the drug trade where guns are illegally owned. Uh, police chiefs in Canada will tell you, have testified in parliament that over 90% of the guns used to kill or use in violence in Canada are smuggled. There's smuggling, I mean, there's money. There's a lot of money in drugs. And so they, these people need the newest, the most modern. And so it's not thefts, it's not straw purchase, it's smuggling where you get the cute, new, fancy, popular guns and that's what they want. Uh, so it's illegal. You know, uh, can we talk about that a bit? Because there was misinformation that was put out at that time 
And I remember Matt Gurney had done some great reporting on this and the misinformation put out at the time by a, a senior person in the Toronto police force was that there was a growing number of firearms that were legally owned that were being acquired through theft or some other means by the criminal element. And so this is the way the thinking went. Given that there's a larger number of legally owned firearms finding their way into criminal hands, therefore we should stop the legal ownership of firearms so that we can reduce the number of firearms getting into criminal hands. That's sort of the logic that was going on. But I think that original premise um, is not true. Um, well, there's two sources of information about guns used in crime. There's Statistics Canada, and I have put in requests for information from them. It's quite expensive, but you can do this, and they give you the numbers, and that's one source. The other source are police statistics, and you can trace guns from where they came from, but it's costly. The police have to pay money to trace. So the question is, when you have a crime gun, how many of the crime guns, well, I mean, first of all, the police collect guns in all kinds of ways. So not all these guns they collect are crime guns. So they first, they sort out what's a crime gun. And then in the crime guns, they trace some of them. So maybe 5% of all the guns in their possession are traced. And of these traces, uh, some, are, some are United States. Mm -hmm. So of the ones they don't trace, why don't they trace them? Of the ones that are, and they obviously don't look for whether they're legal or not. They look whether they're Canadian sourced. Um, and this is very complicated. The police are not motivated to look at truth. They're, look, they're motivated to solve cases. They're motivated to work on, on the political angle so that the police budget will increase. So, Police statistics are somewhat doubtful. Um, so I would tend to put my faith in what police chiefs testify in parliament over some ERSAT statistics in Toronto, uh, because I've told you about how many legal gun owners there are in Canada. Ever since the handguns were registered, there's been more guns outside the system than in the system. Most of these are what you could call derisively scoff laws, people who just are normal people, but they have violated a few laws. They're not criminals in the sense. They just happen to have, if they were caught, uh, they would be, but they just have a shotgun or a handgun that grandma had or they had. Or So there's a lot of guns out there. And these are much more readily stolen. And the criminals have guns, of course. So there's black guns, gray guns, and honest guns. Mm -hmm. And so if a, if a policeman says the guns come from Canada, is that a legal one? Is that a criminal one? Was it registered? So it, it's hard to know. Okay, well, thanks for clarifying on that because well, I, I thought that there was <laughs> it does. I thought there was misinformation there, and I want anyone who who was left with the impression that what was said was true. I think they needed to know all of those caveats. I'm beginning to think that bad ideas spread virally because it's fascinating to me to watch how some of the bad ideas in Australia and New Zealand during the COVID response spread to Canada. 
And uh, it's interesting to me that those two nations, like uh, UK and Australia, also were already first to the gate in taking an aggressive approach against firearms. But so, so just r remind us of, about what happened there. So do we have no crime, no gun crime left in the UK now that they've made a, a decision to, uh, to to ban firearms? And, and tell us what, what the history happened. Well, two, two points. First of all, the world's elite talk with each other. Mm. Um, it is no surprise that the leaders of all the democratic countries get to know each other, talk with each other, share ideas, share culture. So the leaders of Australia, all parties, New Zealand, all parties, uh, UK, Canada, all get to know each other. And so that if, if there's an idea, they all share it. Uh, Trudeau called... Uh, uh, Ardern and talked to her before he brought in this current uh, gun ban. And so they talked about how to do this and problems and advantages. Second, none of the best research shows that these gun bans and gun laws are ineffective. They do not reduce crime. Hmm. If you look at Australia, the crime, the homicide rates fell before the gun law was brought in, it continued to fall, but not as fast after the gun law was in. The New Zealand, the crime rates have been gradually increasing. The New Zealand uh, banned uh, the guns. Crime rate continued to increase. Uh, in Canada, uh, a colleague of mine, Kylan Langman, has done a few papers that are incredibly uh, well done. I have done a few papers the best research cannot find any effectiveness in suicides, homicides, or firearms accidents from these gun laws in any of these countries. And the same thing in the United Kingdom. Is there, tell me a couple of things that are going on there. Um, let's deal with uh, the issue of, is it because it's so easy to source firearms illegally that you continue to see a high level of homicide rate regardless of gun crimes? Or is it the, there's a switching that if you're intent on killing somebody, um, there's always other methods to use. And so you might see an increase in knife crime. Do, do, do you have some revelations on that? Well, crime is a market. There's money to be made robbing people, selling drugs, and they don't have lawyers. So how do you settle disputes? They need power. They need force. Guns offer this. So guns are a very practical solution for people involved in criminal enterprises. Uh, second, the people at the pointy end of this stick are young males, for the most part, who uh, have all the problems of adolescence and arrogance and uh, pride and stupidity. And so much of their uh, disputes are not good, solid business disputes, but rather somebody looked at them cross-eyed or their girlfriend looked at their competition not cross-eyed. Uh, and so guns are very useful. If guns are useful, somebody will f find a way to provide a use for a price. So ports are worldwide notorious for corruption whether it's Jamaica, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, you want something that goes through a port, you can uh, figure out how to do it. I met some friends of mine in France 
who were Canadian. And when they went back to Montreal to live, they shipped a few boxes of, of wine to themselves. By the time they got it, 10% of the bottles were disappeared somehow. So it's not just guns, it's just parts. So crime is, is, is motivating. Guns are useful. And Canadian uh, statistics show that something like 70 to 80% of the people who are involved in homicide have a criminal record. Over 50% of the victims of a homicide in Canada have a criminal record. So we're not talking normal people who somehow see a gun on the kitchen table and shoot their husband or shoot their wife or run outside and shoot everybody in a local kindergarten. Uh, we're talking criminals. Let's, let me ask you about, you mentioned suicide, because I think that's the other aspect that people think, well, if you didn't have, because suicide, I think, is believed by many. I don't, I don't know if this is true, but it's believed by many to be um, uh, based on a person's state of mind at a particular point in time. Therefore, if you don't have a firearm on site, that state of mind will pass and the person will survive. And so do you see any evidence that more draconian gun ownership laws lead to a decrease in suicides? No, no, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, there are numerous ways to effectively commit suicide if that's what the person decides to do. Simple, effective ways to commit suicide besides guns. Okay. What about uh, accidental shootings? I don't know how common those are in the first place, but because um, you, but whenever they do happen, um, they, they make front page headline news. Um, and so can you put it into context and tell us whether or not there's any evidence that banning guns or taking some guns off the market from legal own legal ownership does that reduce the amount of of uh, of accidents? Well, first first of all, uh, there are very few firearms accidents uh, in both the United States and Canada. There's a remarkably small number. It's it's a really a minor part of uh, firearms deaths or accidental deaths. Um, part of this is because you know, most firearms owners are indeed law-abiding. There really aren't that many criminals. Uh, there's millions of people who own firearms in both countries and they have a strong safety conscious culture. And so firearms are very uh, safely handled. So accidents, for example, in Canada, there's 10 firearms accidents a year, under 10 many years. So that's what, 35 million people? Something like a third of the houses have guns and there's 10 accidental deaths? That is like microscopic. You also had some, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head, but in some of your writings, you compare that to some of the other causes of death, like drowning or car accidents. Just to put it into context, if there's 10 accidental deaths, how, how does that compare with other types of homes that might, or accidents that might occur in the home? Well, middle-aged men fall off of ladders very frequently. Car accidents outnumber all the other accidents incredibly more. Uh, drownings. The biggest danger for a child is drowning. Buckets, five-gallon buckets kill toddlers. Uh, we're not talking swimming pools. We're talking buckets. Uh, bicycle accidents. Uh, and it is no surprise that teenagers are the ones who die in many of these accidents. They do all sorts of stuff 
without thinking mm -hmm. and driving is just one of the most obvious ones. So accidents uh, and fires, fires kill more families than, than guns by like a factor of five or six. Uh, fires are just not, not a sizable accident. Even in suicides, uh, the most common way of committing suicide is hanging. Mm. Um, men and women prefer hanging. Women prefer pills. Um, guns are third, fourth, fifth of the ways in which one could try to commit suicide. There are lots more effective ways. All of the ones I've mentioned are just as effective as shooting and a heck of a lot messier. What about domestic violence? Because uh, I, I'm struck by the fact that in the application process, you have to talk about whether you've had a, mar a marriage or a relationship breakdown, whether whether and you have to get your spouse or significant other to sign off that you're in the a, a proper frame of mind to be able to get approval. Is there 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 are crimes of passion that occur? I don't know how frequently they do, or whether the evidence shows that there's any more or fewer um, domestic incidents that take place with firearms once once these kinds of measures have been passed. Do you have some let, stats let on that? Let me give you some, some statistics. Senator Ann Cools, when Bill C-68 was under discussion in the Senate, uh, found out that of the 600 some odd homicides a year, 35 involve uh, domestic homicides, hmm. uh, 35. So this is not a large number. Second, Statistics Canada every year uh, publishes statistics on how many domestic of incidents of violence involve women and guns. Under 1% of all the domestic uh, uh, homicides involve a gun, under 1%. Uh, the obvious argument would be men are usually bigger, stronger than their partner, and they can, they don't need anything more than their fists or maybe whatever heavy is laying around if they wanted to hurt the person close to them. Uh, women kill their husband more often with a gun because a gun helps a smaller person deal with a bigger person than men hurt women. Uh, a third number is um, there's roughly 2 million people have a firearm license in Canada and of those 2 million, roughly 100 each year are disqualified from owning a firearm because of charges of domestic violence, not convictions, charges. So 100 out of 2 100 million. 100 out of 2 million. That's remarkable. Those sets are, are, I think, important because I think what you're at, what, what the question society needs to ask itself is, if we have four million firearms out there and two million legally registered firearms owners, does preventing one hundred percent of them from no longer owning firearms would that save? Would that stop crime? Would that stop smuggling? Would that stop the number of cases of accidental death? Would that stop suicides? Would that stop domestic violence? And I think you've done a good job of saying no, but there's still a strong connection where people think it ought to work. Um, so, so let's then talk through a, a little bit more about, you, all roads to me in our conversation seem to be leading to young people, mostly men involved in gang violence and, um, uh, drug dealing and cross-border smuggling. So if, if those are the things that are creating the violence and the homicides and the and the mayhem in, in city centers where there's concern, 
there has to be, and none of the laws that we have talked about so far would address the illegal ownership and use of firearms and the smuggling. What are the ways to deal with those issues? What, it, why is it such a tough nut to crack? Because it does strike me if we had the ability to stop smuggling, orders are controlled by government. You'd think if there was a will, they should be able to create new x-ray technology. They should be able to have cameras monitoring their employees to make sure that payoffs are blind eyes aren't turned, that sort of thing. Like it, it seems to me it should be almost watertight that you'd be able to prevent firearms from coming across the border since you can't get across the border without having some kind of, of government agent allowing you across the border. What am I missing? Well, first of all, in the recent testimony to the House of Commons, police chiefs and uh, border security people testified that the border is far too porous. The budgets are low, in, uh, unacceptably low, and the laws are patchwork. For example, trains bring supplies and containers of, of things across the border with virtually no inspection. So if you wanted to bring a container load of firearms, put it on a train, unex virtually unexpected. Uh, the border people admitted that almost all the firearms that they captured at the border are ignorant Americans who didn't understand that they had to declare and couldn't bring a handgun. That most of these are just ignorant people running afoul of a law they didn't understand. They do not catch the drug gangs. So, so, so why, like, what is the reason for why? Because it's a large volume of firearms that come across. So one way, I guess, they would be coming across would we be by trains. But how, how else are they getting across the border? How else are they smuggled? Uh, there's billions of dollars uh, coming across that border of all kinds of things. And most of it is inspected by manifest. If the manifest says it's bathroom parts or machine parts, it's machine parts. The bureaucrats live in a paper world. And there's not, it's a huge amount of money to check all this mm -hmm. stuff. It takes time and there's tons of stuff coming across. So you would slow it down if you're doing it poorly and badly. And that's what you get when you don't do it with an expensive modern process. So it's complicated, it's hard, the law's not there, there's various difficulties, and it's a silo, it's not my problem, I'm paid to do this, I do this, that's my job, that's somebody else's job. So essentially it's fallen through the cracks, okay. the border is porous. So let's then uh, eliminate that as an option, that we're not going to be able to seal the border. Then you have to work on how do you reduce the number of people who wanna get involved in organized crime? How do you keep those, those young men, um, principally, as you'd mentioned, out of out of that lifestyle? Or is that also just there always has been crime, there always will be crime? I guess that's the, the frustration is that there, there doesn't seem to be very good public policy answers. And so I just want to see if there is a better public policy answer for the demand side. We've dealt with the supply side and seen where the problems are. But what about the demand side? Is there what kind of policies, if government really wanted to end mass shootings and end school shootings and end the gunplay that happens on the, on the street where, where gangsters are, are killing each other, what would be more practical ways of addressing that? 
Well, first of all, crime is universal and always will be. We'll always have criminals and we'll always have criminal opportunities. So it's never something that will disappear no matter what our policies are. The second is we could work to diminish the society's problems that lead to criminal opportunities and criminal uh, 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 involvement. First of all, the idea of a high uh, minimum wage means that teenagers, inexperienced, incompetent teenagers can't get low paying jobs to begin a lifetime of work. Uh, the jobs are priced out. Machinery is cheaper than hiring a dumb kid to do a dumb job just because he's your neighbor's friend. So there's, there's very few jobs around. We could work on how to improve uh, uh, low-paying jobs for teenagers. Second, society is tough at the bottom end. When somebody comes to a new country with a new language and a new culture and uh, tries to find a way to create a new life and their kids are much more rapidly socialized and see just how bad outclassed their parents are and how much money is available. This is not racist because the same argument has been held traditionally in Canada for Irish, my heritage, part of my heritage is Irish, for Italians, for Ukrainians, for Japanese, for Chinese, for who, whoever comes, right? It's That's, the, the newcomers. The <laughs> I'm hearing you say newcomers are at greater risk of having kids recruited just because of the combination of factors of trying to make it in a new environment and easy money, and then also difficulty getting that entry level job, so that you, you you can you can start on that pathway to developing a career path early. I've new new immigrants are just one of the kinds of problems, but it is a thing that we could address if we had systematic ways to socialize new immigrants, to help bolster families, to help uh, teens figure out how to do get jobs and things. Uh, they're not unique. Again, the problem is teenagers and how do you socialize them? And the other part of this is families. If we have a robust welfare system, women find it easy to live without a horrible, ugly man uh, and raise their kids. Young adolescents, young children need a two-parent household. We have not designed a society that gives robust two-party households. Uh, That's a, you I know, I, and you can see why. You can see why after all of that, why politicians. Well, I, say, I come to this uh, with reluctance because one of the reasons I wanted my my lovely wife, one of the reasons I picked her is because she is qualified she works she's a employed person she, she could somebody i could talk to she I, we have a two income half family which i want but we always work together to raise our kids and that's really hard for people uh if if everybody's working eight to five who takes care of the kid completely but but that that battery of things that we need to do to provide the social support to our most vulnerable citizens those are hard things to do hard and thing. so you so you can see why politicians say i've got a solution we're going to ban military style assault firearms and that will solve all of our problems so that's what's coming next i hope that people see the absurdity 
of the argument that government makes after this conversation that we have had, because that I wanted to, to end up where we find ourselves today. Um, but I wanted people to have a full range of the complexity of the discussion to know that this is a simplistic response. It's a political response. It's not That's likely right. to work. And it's going to crea create potential for a lot of hardship because if you don't comply, now all of a sudden you're a criminal and you're the person who could be apprehended by the law. There's going to be a huge potential financial cost associated with it because um, I think you've said that there's some discrepancy in how much the government has budgeted for the confiscation and compensation program versus how much it would actually cost if we had a full accounting of all of the firearms. So let me see if we can just get into this a little bit so that people know where we are at because I, I did a number of segments on this prior to the election, but elections, if people don't know how our political process works, if a bill has not been passed into law through all its readings, given royal assent, it falls off the order paper, as it's called. And for it to come back, it has to be reintroduced. That's so right. uh, my the status of the bill that you've been following, Bill C-21, it fell off, sorry, Bill C-21. C, sorry, all these C's. C-71. I mean, no, no, C-71 passed. C-21 was the one that fell off the order paper. You had it right. Okay, perfect. So C-21 fell off the order Tell us where we are at then with a C-21. What is it aim? What, what was it going to do and are you expecting it to come back again? Well, back in 2020, when the government by order and council banned hundreds of thousands of firearms, they vaguely promised that there would be some sort of compensation when they ordered the firearms surrender. There's no legislation at all that would back this up. No budget at all for this. Um, they've uh, been planning for two years to do something, but it's within the purview of former gun law to ban whatever they want, but not in the law to pay money or to collect, to destroy it. So that legislation was supposedly embedded in C-21, among other things. Um, since that legislation that are in the order paper, the government now says that soon, real soon now, they're going to introduce a bill that will back up the uh, uh, confiscations and introduce even more gun control. But we don't know what that is. So then I better uh, be, make sure I understand. So... Bill C-71 has passed, is law. That is the law that criminalizes uh, the ownership of 1,500 different um, types of military-style assault firearms. Is that correct? No, no, no. The only thing that uh, banned the 1,500 types was an order in council. Hmm. It, was, it was something that previous gun legislation uh, dating from C-68 probably that said that the government in, in council can decide to, to ban whatever they want that's not of fit for sporting purposes is a justification. So, so that's, C-71 was a number of changes uh, that were really details about tightening up uh, gun ownership. For example, right now, uh, prior to C-71, if I want to sell you a gun, I have to ask you, do you have a, a uh, firearm license and you have to show it to me and you have to look at me and say do you have a firearm license and I say yes here it is so if you and I see each other's firearms license I can sell you a gun or you can sell me a gun 
C-71 said that was now illegal, that we have to call Miramichi and tell them what our license numbers are. And then Miramichi will say, oh, yes, you have a license. And the other person, yes, they have a license. And so that's what C-71 did. Okay. That, so it, it was all complicated to make life more complicated, but it didn't ban anything. I uh, understand. So the ban okay. can happen just by edict. It, it's the RCMP, I suppose, giving recommendations to government. Government's passing it through cabinet. And then all of a sudden, um, you've, without any public debate or any That's legislative right. approval, all of a sudden you're in danger of running afoul of the law and being rendered a criminal. So well, with if, if I understand this correctly, there was sort of an announcement that these firearms were no longer allowed to be legally owned, but they weren't going to enforce it until I think the end of April of what, 2022 or 2023? At the end of April this year. This year? A month, a month and a half, the amnesty ends. So what does that mean when the amnesty ends? Well, we don't really know. But in principle, all the firearms that were banned in, in uh, May 2020 are now supposedly criminally owned. So if you have one, you are now a criminal. You have not surrendered it. You have not been reimbursed. And therefore, you're a criminal. Uh, but the government has not yet proceeded with either the law or the regulations or telling people what the law and regulations are about what to do with these guns. So the expectation, and it's, it's just our guess, is that the government will sometime in the next month or so uh, extend the amnesty for another year or so. Yes, because they can't do it now. Now it's, they've delayed so long and we've had the, right. the election in the way. They, they won't be able to put the architecture in place That's in time right. to enforce it at the end of April. Is it is it possible they will just try to get away with not providing compensation and just make all those otherwise legally uh, law-abiding gun owners criminals just by, by the fact that the amnesty ends? Well, the government could wait until after the amnesty expires and then reintroduce an amnesty. So there's no reason for the government to uh, uh, be polite or uh, consistent. The government could wait a year and then reintroduce the amnesty. All they would need to do is tell the police, yes, yes, these guys are all criminals, but don't go after them. Well, but that's that's probably not what's going to happen. They will probably have an amnesty extension and then uh, in another year decide if they know then know what they want to do, maybe extend it another year. Uh, because at this point, uh, they don't know what to do. Um, for example, they've spent $10 million planning and they haven't made any decision or I haven't announced one anyway. Um, while they're saying that they had a budget, I think initially of $300 million, uh, it sounds to me like it's going to be dramatically more expensive for them to execute on this program. Can you talk about what your calculations show? Well, my calculations that I put, did for the Fraser Institute shows that the uh, bureaucracy would cost at least $5 billion if they followed the New Zealand approach to collecting it. Um, we don't know how much it would cost to 
destroy the firearms. We don't know how much it costs to consult. We don't know how much it would cost to advertise. I mean, by advertise, I include uh, letting people know that your gun is to be turned in. Um, IBM just recently submitted a proposal to the government saying that they, the government shouldn't follow the New Zealand approach, but should notify people who have firearms licenses that if they have a gun they want to surrender, they should sign up and tell the government what this gun is and then mail it to them through Canada Post. I think you've done just a tremendous job of walking us through why people choose to own firearms, want to own firearms, should be allowed to own firearms. It should be in, indeed a, a, an obligation of citizenship to understand how it is you can defend your country. I think you did a great job of that. We've Thank walked you. through why it is they do the gun bans do not work, where the actual nature of the violent crime and violent use of firearms lies. And I guess in the end, I, if for those who may still be unpersuaded <laughs> that they still think the federal government is taking the right approach. What does it matter? Like, what does it matter if we have a government that sort of systematically identifies certain types of firearms to eliminate over time, does it slowly compensates? Why, why is that? If that's what society decides is that they want to be an, a, a country that does not have gun ownership Ultimately, because I, I think if you keep down this path, uh, ultimately, there's going to be such a limited number of people who own firearms or such a public support in the major voting centers against firearm ownership that it, it wouldn't surprise me that that's sort of the ultimate end that, that this could play out in. Why would it matter if that was the case? What's the, what's the danger? Well, let's take a step back. The, the first problem with this is that the government can decide to demonize a segment of society that is law-abiding and then confiscate their livelihoods, confiscate their hobbies. We Historically, we have said that religious groups, ethnic groups that the government has decided as uh, demons and should be robbed or killed or ostracized, we have seen that as being evil. Why is it different to pick rural people, white people, yellow people, whatever, gun owners? Why could we not pick any group and then demonize them and steal their stuff? That sounds like a very bad principle. Second, gun-owning Canadians are, are responsible, law-abiding, traditional believers, believers in traditional Canada. The current political party says we're post-national and has a certain set of values, and these people are don't fit in. Uh, Trudeau called the truckers Nazis and racists and misogynists and I don't know what all. Uh, that had unacceptable views. Was the unacceptable other line. views. Well, I mean, if the government can decide who has unacceptable views and steal all their stuff, whether it's trucks or guns. That sounds like an unfriendly government. Well, it's been such a delight talking with you. Thank you so much for telling us your your sort of your journey to becoming the 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 uh, the expert and scholar that you are on this issue. I've always appreciated your work, and I guess this is a chapter that's uh, not completely written yet. So oh. I'm sure we'll be talking again. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. 
You bet. That's Gary Mauser, Emeritus Professor in the Beatles School of Business at Simon Fraser University, as well as Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.